Welcome back into another edition of the BrownZone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. My name is Andy Bullbarch. I am joined by Scott Petrek with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and of course, BrownZone.com. Well, isolation has certainly kept us all in a pretty interesting place right now, Scott, and I feel like I haven't seen you in about a month, month and a half. These these are some strange times, my friend. Yeah, I know. I miss you. I miss being there in the uh, studio, but spent a lot of quality time in my recliner i'll tell you that (laughs) nothing wrong with that and i'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that are probably in that very same boat but we have a lot of things to tackle today we will get into some of the comments made by some of the newest cleveland browns we'll also get in to that linebacking group and also how the COVID-19 crisis has already affected the draft process and how much it will continue to affect the draft as well. But Scott, we will begin by talking about some of the bigger names that the Browns have agreed to terms with in free agency. What are some of your major takeaways now that we have heard from all of these guys? Yeah, you know, it's interesting the path that leads everybody to sign in with their new team in free agency. And a lot of that is obviously based on money, right? If you offer most money, a guy would usually sign with that team. But if you take that part of the equation out of it, and I know it's a big part of the equation, there's also other reasons. And I think we saw, we heard many of those reasons when we talked to some of these guys that have signed. Now, not everybody's become official yet, right? Carl Joseph, um, the safety, he hasn't, you know, they either hasn't taken his physical yet or there's a holdup. So we haven't, it hasn't become official. We haven't talked to him yet. It's tougher to get physicals now during the pandemic. But we talked to Case Keenum and Jack Conklin and Austin Hooper and Andrew Billings. So I think you get a little bit of insight into why each guy signed. And I'll start with just Jack Conklin because I think he's the biggest signing of this free agent period and a guy that new general manager Andrew Barry targeted from the get-go to be his right tackle. And, you know, Conklin talked about coming back to the Midwest. He's a Michigan guy. He went to Michigan State. Then he went to Tennessee. And it's not like Tennessee's, you know, a moon away or anything, but he just mentioned, hey, I want to come back to the Midwest. I like the weather. His wife is from the east side of Cleveland, so that's a connection. Um, But to me, the, the most interesting thing he said when we were talking was the desire to get Nick Chubb the rushing title. And the irony of the whole situation is that Nick Chubb's leading the NFL in rushing, right? It looks like he's going to be the guy. He's got a big lead going into game 15 and then game 16, the finale in Cincinnati. Chubb doesn't have two big days. For whatever reason, Freddie Kitchens didn't run the ball a bunch against Cincinnati. The Browns got behind. Chubb gets 40-some yards, I think. And then Tennessee with Derrick Henry, and with Jack Conklin leading the way at right tackle, Henry goes off, runs for 200-some yards, passes Nick Chubb. So Conklin gets the rushing title in his last year in Tennessee. Henry buys all the linemen a Rolex. And now Conklin comes to Cleveland, and his goal, he said, is to get Nick Chubb that rushing title that Chubb was kind of got stolen away from him last year. So I, I think that'd be interesting if Conklin could get one for Henry in 19 in Tennessee and come to Cleveland in 20 and get one for Nick Chubb. And I know that the rest of the Browns locker room feels the same way. They were, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on at the end of the season, right? Freddie gets fired, and they finish 6-10. and 10. It's a disappointing season, all that. But I, I really, 
believe, and I got the sense from guys like Joe Batonio and J.C. Trenner and Kareem Hunt, that they were truly disappointed that Nick Chubb did not get that rushing title because Nick Chubb is a guy that works really hard. He's about the team, but that would have been a really significant individual achievement for Nick Chubb. And certainly there could be another Rolex in the deal for Conklin if yeah. Chubb wins the rushing title, right? Yeah, something, right? I mean, whether whether it's a Rolex or sometimes guys you know, buy really expensive grills, whatever it is, suits, uh, who knows. But I would think Nick Chubb, who's quiet as can be, I think he would reward his lineman with something. And I, it's interesting. I wonder, he wouldn't. He didn't share this with us before, you know, leading into the finale, because maybe he was afraid to jinx it or whatever. But I, I wonder what he had in mind to buy the lineman last season if, in fact, he had held on to that title. Yeah, very interesting. Well, maybe he'll have an opportunity to – Get those wheels spinning to see what he can get those guys if he wins the rushing title this coming year as well. Well, another guy that the Browns signed I felt like was a little bit of an under-the-radar signing. Andrew Billings is uh, expected to make a nice impact on this defensive line. What do you think the signing of Billings will do for the Browns' defense? Yeah, you're, you're right about being a little under the radar. And part of that is because, you know, D-tackles don't get a ton of publicity. I think the other part of that is when you project him into the Browns' defense, he's a third defensive tackle. So he probably won't even be on the field to start games. But I don't think that should lessen the impact that he could have when we talk about what impact he could have. Um, yes, you have Larry Ogunjobi. Yes, you have Sheldon Richardson. You have Andrew Billings. And obviously, you have three starting caliber defensive tackles. And that's important when you're trying to stop the run. It's important when you're trying to get that interior pass rush. It's important when you're trying to get other threats across that defensive line. Right? You have Miles Garrett for now, at least for now, maybe for the whole season. You have Olivia Vernon at the other end. But you need depth and you need threats across the front. And I think we saw when Miles Garrett got hurt and – Vernon, or not got suspended. I'm sorry, got suspended. Olivier Vernon gets hurt. The Browns just didn't have the depth they needed across the front. So I think Billings is a key addition. I think he fits well into that rotation. He started 30 games in the last two years with Cincinnati, put up pretty good numbers. So I think he could have gone other places and been a starter. But to come to Cleveland, I think it really beats up that tackle rotation. And, and I do think it's a good signing. Now, it's a one-year deal. Most of these, or maybe all of these defensive guys that have been agreed to contracts have been one-year deals. I think part of that is Andrew Barry trying to keep flexibility as he's going to have to sign guys like Miles Garrett to long-term big-money extension. Part of it is, is once you get past that first wave of free agency, then these guys don't want to get to cheap long-term deals. They'll take a cheaper one-year deal. Um, but then they can get back on the market, and maybe they have a big year, and they can sign a big deal. And that doesn't mean Andrew Barry can't sign these guys to extensions during the year. A guy like Carl Joseph or Billings um, or even Kevin Johnson and Nickelback. But it gives Barry flexibility and allows you to have this guy in your building and see, hey, is this a guy we really want to have long-term? So I'm, I'm good with the decision to sign some of these guys to one-year deals. I think it also gives you flexibility in the draft. You can still go draft the safety, go draft a linebacker, and say, hey, even if he doesn't play right away, he can step the, guy, the rookie can step into the starting role 
in year two. That draft pick can step into the that starting role in year two. Um, but getting back to Billings, yeah, I, I think he is an under-radar guy, and I think he's a really solid addition, and I would say one of many for Andrew Barry in his first run at free agency. Now, do you think that that particular unit takes on a little bit more importance this year, especially when you consider the lack of experience that all of the Browns lost at the group right behind them with the linebackers. I know signing B.J. Goodson was something that a lot of people were pretty excited about, but when you lose the experience that they lost there in both Kirksey and Schobert, that does leave at least a little bit of a void, especially when you're talking about experience. There's no doubt about that. And I think I think it's interesting. I think the way the linebacker room was when Andrew Barry took over and Kevin Stefanski, the coach, I think that plays partly into it. You had Christian Kirksey, due to make big money, he'd been hurt. It only made sense to cut him. You had Joe Schobert, reaching for agency. The Browns weren't willing to pay what he was going to get on the open market. And Andrew Berry probably would have tried to sign him to a longer term, maybe, you know, hometown discount deal a year earlier if he were around, but that ship had sailed, so they made the decision to let Schobert go. So I think circumstance played a part in it, but I also think the Browns believe that linebacker isn't as important as defensive line or as secondary, right, especially cornerbacks. And when you prioritize positions, I think you have to do that, and I think the Browns have done that, and I'd be stunned if the Browns ever spent a ton of money on their linebacking core. It just doesn't feel like their philosophy. Now, maybe you find a guy like Isaiah Simmons, in the draft, and that changes how you approach things. But I think it's clear they're going to invest in your defensive line, in your cornerbacks, and to me that's fine and that's the right way to go, but it does put extra pressure on the guys up front to take some of the load off that middle group. And you can't just ignore the middle group, right? Linebackers are important. You have to be able to run with tight ends. You have to be able to cover running backs. You have to be able to make those tackles. But I think it is clear that there's much more of a priority up front in the back than in that middle group. Well, you had mentioned the draft there a few moments ago, and I want to head down this road, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this in the coming weeks as the draft, believe it or not, is a little bit less than a month away now. But, you know, the the whole COVID-19 crisis has had an effect on everybody. But this NFL draft process certainly will take at least a little bit of a hit. You heard from a lot of general managers saying that, we just don't have enough time to get out in front of these guys. The only option they've got right now is to do the video conferencing thing, and that satisfies at least a little bit of what they're looking for. But you know, having the opportunity to watch these guys work out firsthand, that's kind of taken away to some degree also. So you can certainly see the concern on behalf of the general managers across the league. But on the other hand, I think the NFL doesn't want to get pushed back too far. So they're sticking to their guns, and they're still going to hold the draft as originally scheduled. It's just going to look a heck of a lot different. And the draft is something that you can certainly do without a crowd. There's no doubt about that. And I think, Scott, you can make the argument that the draft, while I'm sure it's fun to attend, has really more than anything else become a made-for-TV event. So having the crowd there, yeah, it does add a little something to the atmosphere, but it's not necessary. How much do you think this could change the draft here in the next few weeks? Well, you're completely right about that. Well, and, and I think 
I think when you talk about whether or not the NFL should continue, should have continued with free agency and whether or not it should continue with the draft, I think the reality is these are things that you are, the league is able to do without endangering lives, right? And without endangering, endangering the health of people. And that just can't be said for pretty much any other sport that we're talking about. You can't play basketball, you can't play baseball. We've probably seen every sport shut down. So with that in mind, I think the NFL said, first of all, we can still do this. It's going to be different. It's not going to be the same, but we can still do it, free agency and the draft. I think it said, hey, let's take advantage of this void in sports because the NFL loves to be the talk of the town, the talk of the world, the talk of the sports world. It certainly has been, right? It's either coronavirus news or NFL news because there's nothing else going on pretty much. Um, and then third, I think you're right when you say they didn't want to keep kicking it down the road because you never know what's going to be. We don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know if, if Saban said, let's postpone the draft until May 23rd because you give us another month and maybe teams are able to get back in their buildings. Maybe it can be more normal. Well, what if the spike is May 15th and then you're really just doing the same thing you would have done in April, but you delayed it a month. Uh, it just, I think the NFL sees a whole lot of uncertainty and says, you know what, we can have certainty by keeping to our normal schedule. And that's what it's doing. And I'm okay with that, personally. I think that some people think, hey, let's focus all our attention on dealing with the coronavirus. And I understand that argument. I think this is a welcome distraction, personally. I think it's a welcome distraction for the sports world. And I think you can do it safe, safely. So, with that in mind, the draft's going to continue, and Roger Goodell has been adamant about that. Um, what is interesting, and there's a million facets involved here, but how do the general managers adapt? And you're right, they're not happy about it, right? And we've read that the general manager's committee said, no, let's postpone the draft. And Goodell said, nope, we're keeping it as normal. So the general managers are going to have to figure things out. And they're going to have to come to grips with the reality that it's not a normal draft. And that, yes, your scouts aren't even going to be in the same room with you when you're watching film. Like, there's all kinds of variables that come into play here and contingencies. And it's going to be amazing to me how it all plays out. And I think the smartest teams will have an advantage. I think the teams that have had continuity and stability will have an advantage because they've been through this process before where the Browns with the first-time GM and a first-time head coach have never been through this, it's going to be more difficult for them. And hopefully, if you're a Browns fan, they can compensate because they're so smart, right, and they're hard Ivy League guys, and they can figure out workarounds, but it's not going to be easy. Um, and there's just a million facets to it. What about the technology, right? The IT people setting up the conference calls and figuring out a way to get the coaches to watch the film they need to, and the scouts to continue watching the film they need to. There's just a million things involved here. And the last one before I let you talk again is, I'm just thinking it's a good thing the Browns don't need to draft a quarterback because remember all those years where we spent all our focus on which quarterback they're going to draft. Well, part of the evaluation is seeing the quarterback throw up close and personal. If you're Cincinnati coach Zach Taylor, right, and you're going to draft you think you're going to draft Joe Burrow or it's Burrow or Tua or whoever, whatever your decision is. I'm not sure Zach Taylor has seen Joe Burrow throw 
live in person. I don't think Burrow threw at the combat. And I'm sure they would have had a private workout. I'm sure Tula would have attended the pro day at LSU. Well, now you don't have a pro day. And now you don't have private workouts. And I would feel a little uncertain or a little nervous as a coach, anxious, if I didn't get to see my number one pick quarterback throw in person. Yes, I've watched him on film. Yes, I can listen to the scouts and listen to the GM. But that's something I would want. I've talked to a ton of coaches who they need to see the ball come out of a quarterback's hand. And to not have that critical piece of information with your number one overall pick, that's a whole new world. Yes, that is a whole new world. And this draft is going to be a little bit different for sure, I think. You mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. This draft will kind of feel like a little bit of a throwback to the times where you basically had stand, you know, you had standers by, team officials sitting by with the phones, and they would turn the card into the commissioner. And you didn't have a ton of people in the same room, but you know, it's more than just the people that are in the room. I guess this year it would have been in Vegas. In recent years, you know, they've decided to split out the location. Now you're talking about not necessarily splitting up the bodies where the draft is taking place. You're talking about splitting up bodies as well in each respective war room. And I'm curious as to how you think that that dynamic will work because anybody who's been a part of a video conference call, sometimes it works seamlessly and sometimes it can be really confusing to try and get your message across. And if you have a bunch of scouts in the same room lobbying for a guy that they believe should be picked – Sometimes that message kind of gets lost in translation with a video conference call when sometimes if more than one person speaking at once, the, me- the message really kind of gets diluted a little bit. And you're also doing this when you're on the clock, so you've got to make quick, informed decisions. I just kind of feel like if all those bodies aren't in the same room, that whole process becomes a lot tougher. No, you're 100% right, and I'm glad you mentioned the small window when you have – I mean, you don't. You have, I think it's 10 minutes in the first round, and then it decreases, and maybe it's still 15 minutes in the first round. Um, that's not a lot of time. And it's not a lot of time when, let's say you were, you're picking 10th, like the Browns, and, all, and you assume a guy's going to be there. And all of a sudden, the two guys, right, you go, okay, we're, we're no, we're going to be A or B. And then A and B go 8 and 9, right? Obviously, you've talked about that, but there's a little, you're knocked back on your heels a bit. So then you have to recover quickly. And now you have voices trying to say, okay, well, this is the guy we decided. No, what about this? What about do we trade down? How do you get 10 teams on the phone to discuss trades when you don't have your normal infrastructure, right? You don't have your normal phone bank where you have scouts or personnel guys talking to all these other teams. I think that's good. I think we could see way fewer trades because of that, because you feel like, well, I just don't want to screw this up. I'm going to take my guy early so there's no confusion, so we don't get passed up. So I get to pick in the NFL headquarters. And you're right about the voices, too. I can envision a scenario where, you know, let's say there's normally I don't know, 25 people in the draft room, right? Maybe there's now we have six guys on a conference call because that's easier to handle. And Yes, you can call in an individual scout and say, okay, you know, he was your area, your area scout, he was your guy. Tell us real quick about him. Or you can have a position coach on the phone. But I, I just think there's going to be a whole lot of scenarios you have to work through there. And 
it's just it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out because what what we don't know yet is are people going are NFL teams going to be allowed back in their buildings because right now they're not so everybody's working from home but I could I think the ideal scenario is you let the GM you let the coach you let the owner whatever it is five six people into the building and yes they can practice social distancing because these draft rooms are huge. But at least they can be together, and they can have a guy, they can have film of the guy on the board. They can have their actual draft board, right? I mean, I've been in those draft rooms, and you have hundreds of names, and you have each team's rosters. Well, I don't know if Andrew Barry has that in his house. I'm sure he has something online, but it's not the same, right? They're used to running a draft a certain way. You're used to seeing things, and you can move physically move the guy's name tag from this place to this place. And it's going to be different that way. But if if by April 23rd, everybody's still working at home, and the NFL says, hey, we can't have Denver be in its office and New York not be in its office, so everyone has to work at home, and all buildings are shuttered, I think that's another hurdle technologically and just adaptation-wise that every team's going to have to get used to. It's just going to be completely different. From the visual of Roger Goodell by himself, wherever he is, in L.A. or New York, and everybody on a conference call and everybody on Zoom or however they're using it, to actually Andrew Bennett talking to Thomas Stefanski and talking to the Haslams, this is our pick at number 10. It's just going to be completely different than it has been in the past. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the regionalization with the way that the virus has affected everybody, that will have a large impact on this too because I think you're 100% correct in the idea that Roger Goodell and company know how much of an advantage that would be for a team if, in the scenario you, you laid out, Denver is allowed to have all of the who's who in their front office congregate in one place, whereas in New York, maybe they don't have that luxury. So that will be something really interesting to watch moving forward. And again, this is something that we will tackle here over the next few weeks with the draft a little bit less than a month away. Scott, before we let you go, want to ask you about the article that you wrote or the series of articles that you wrote over the weekend about the golf courses staying open. We usually do the golf shot of the week, and, well, this will be your series of golf, sh- golf shots of the week <laughs> as you attack this from a couple different angles. I thought it was really cool to read this over the weekend because it was a story that looked like it was going one way, and then all of a sudden on the weekend, it totally flipped its script. Man, without a doubt. Um, you know, when the – pandemic first hit and we were deciding who was going to do what stories and i knew i'd have plenty of brown stories but you know well i'm a big golfer so talking to kevin april the sports editor and he's like well why don't you write the story about golf courses if they're staying open if they're not staying open how they're going to handle everything and this is right at the beginning so we didn't know how it was going to play out it was still cold courses most courses weren't even open so i got around to it last week and the weather got nicer and I start calling around. I'm like, all right, how are you guys handling this? And I get all the emails from the courses just because I'm a golfer. You know, and whether or not they were going to raise the cup out of the hole or now they put foam in it so the ball just sits on top so you don't have to dig your hand into the hole. Um, you know, carts, one person per cart. They're going to disinfect, all those things. So what's your protocol? And I'm asking all these courses. And I'm calling on Thursday, and they're all packed because – it's 60 degrees outside. It's nice. It should have been the Indians home opener. So I'm sure plenty of people were off anyway. There's no home opener. So I'm like, all right, well, this is how they're going to handle it. You know, I'm going to work on the story. 
Well, and then in the meantime, I think it was Friday then, the state decides golf is not, golf courses are not essential business and they're going to close them. And I'm talking to the head of the Lorain County Board of Health and he's keeping me updated and I'm talking to golf courses and they're not really getting the message right away. He starts to call them Saturday morning and it's raining by Saturday morning. So it's not an issue, right? Courses weren't going to be open anyway because it poured. Um, but they're dealing with, okay, we're going to have to shut down. And then I get it. I wake up Sunday morning to a text that says the state changed its mind and they're going to allow golf courses to stay open as long as they follow these protocols. So it's just interesting. And we were talking about this a little bit before, before we did the podcast. It's, it feels like golf is in such a unique situation in this unique time that you can make the argument that it's pretty safe. It's safe to do it. Now, I don't think you can ever guarantee things are hundred percent safe, but it's safe to do that. Maybe it's even safer than walking around your neighborhood where the sidewalks are crowded. You get in the open air of the golf course. You can play by yourself or with somebody else, but just make sure you're not within six feet of each other. Um, if you can pay ahead of time, you avoid even going in the clubhouse. If you walk, you don't even have to worry about the cart being touched. It, it feels like one sense of area that you can continue normalcy without putting yourself in danger. Now, you can make the argument that the employees that have to work are in more danger than they would be if they just stayed at home. I think that's a legitimate argument, and I know some courses were worried about that, and I know that, I'm sure, is a concern of the state when they made this decision. But as a just as a golfer, it feels like you can do, you can go play a round of golf and be as safe as possible, and there just aren't a whole lot of things. There might not be any other thing you can say that about right now, and I think that's why the state has decided to allow golf courses to stay open, and I think that's why it's also controversial, because there's plenty of people that say, hey, it's not essential, shut them down, but it feels like an easy way to rationalize because you can do it relatively safe. Tough thing is, it's going to be even more difficult to keep them away as soon as the sun starts to come out and it gets a little bit warmer. We're looking at more consistently good days, too. So th- this will be interesting to follow for sure. Real quick, I think you're right. And I think if you're personally, you know, and I haven't left, I've barely left my house, right? I practice in isolation and I believe in stay at home. But golf would be the one thing that would really make me think about leaving my house and then I would think about, okay, how can I do it safely? And I think the way to do it safe, the safest, is find a day where not a whole bunch of people are golfing, right? You don't even have to worry about being too close to somebody in the parking lot or being close to someone as you wait to get on the first tee. Um, it, it is going to be interesting to see how golf courses are able to handle it. If, in fact, the stay-at-home order, order continues, which it looks like it will, and the weather gets better and everyone is really trying to get out on those golf courses. Yeah, and again, that will only become a little more tough, or will only become tougher as we get closer and closer to the weather consistently getting nicer. Scott, as always, a pleasure to sit down and do the podcast with you. And, well, again, we'll have a lot to talk about here in the coming weeks as we get closer to the NFL draft uh, just a few weeks away. So it, it will be upon us before we know it. But, Scott, as always, a pleasure to do the podcast, and we'll sit down and do a, one of these again next week. Sounds good, Bill. All right, Scott, thank you very much. That's Scott Petrak, Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram. 
the Medina Gazette, and, of course, brownzone.com. That'll put the wraps on this edition of the brownzone.com Zone Coverage Podcast. For Scott Petrak, this is Andy Bullbarch saying thanks again for listening, and we will talk to all of you again next week.